This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I think one of the big themes for me is obsession. Great theme. It's the characters are obsessed. I become obsessed. There's a whole culture of obsession around this far-flung place, Pitcairn Island, and you start finding this insane cause and effect of actions 200 years ago and how they've impacted a group of individuals today. So another big theme is trauma, little traumas everywhere, essentially, and it's a civilization on the edge of the world, and it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author and travel writer Brandon Presser is a fabulous storyteller. His book, The Far Land, is an expansive story that stretches over two centuries. There's a mutiny, a beautiful island, and many, many murders. And as an author, I'm jealous. I will say I love nautical history. If I could write a book that's set on the water, I'm looking for a good mutiny. So I'm so jealous of this story. So let's start. Absolutely, yeah. A bunch of swashbuckling British Navy men who set out on a scientific mission to cultivate a fruit, breadfruit, on the far side of the world in Tahiti and bring it to Jamaica to feed the slaves of the Caribbean plantations. Wow. Only when they arrive, due to storms and other weather, they have to wait for six months in Tahiti before they can go back. And what happens is they fall in love with the destination. They fall in love with the women. And when it's time to go, they rebel. So let's start from the launch. Well, what's interesting is that Lieutenant Bly, who's going to command the vessel, was chosen for completely nepotistic purposes. His wife was of a higher station and her uncle owned a bunch of plantations in the New World. And he petitioned to the Admiralty and was like, please send a ship to get this breadfruit. We need a more sustainable way to feed our slaves of the plantation. So 
Bly was put into place. And back then, people were what was called pressed into service. Navy men would go into bars and force men to join fleets. Hmm. But because Tahiti had this lore around it as this mythical place with beautiful people and beautiful weather, it was actually really easy to find people to join the ship. In fact, Bly had made so many promises to the friends and family of his wife that he was told to take four midshipmen on board and he took about eight. Oh, wow. So he actually stacked the ship incorrectly. He had too many new sailors and that was sort of part of the recipe for what would eventually be a disaster. So not enough career seamen, essentially, who would be loyal to him. You've got a bunch of people who have never really done much of this. Is that right? And were willing to rebel, I would guess. Yeah. So he had a whole coterie of 15-year-old boys. And then he had brute strength. And then he really worked those men hard because the 15-year-old boys were pretty useless. Hmm. So there were already hard working conditions on board. And when they reached the bottom of South America, there were too many storms to allow them through. They tried for a month to get through the storms. So what they ended up having to do was go the long way around the world, Hmm. under Africa, and then across to Australia. So it was supposed to be a four-month journey. It ended up taking 11, which is why they arrived at the wrong time of the year to collect the breadfruit and turn back around. And they were already working under difficult conditions to begin with. And so you've got all these people who have signed on for a much longer trip than they thought they were going to. Yeah, so they left around Christmas and Bly sort of made an empty promise that they'd be done by the following Christmas. But of course, they didn't even reach Tahiti until October of the following year. That included stops to repair the ship. That included months at sea without any stops, eating disgusting rations at that point. So let's go back because you have said breadfruit several times, and I've never heard that before. So the idea was um, that Captain Cook had already visited Tahiti. In fact, Bly was with him on the mission where he ended up being murdered in Hawaii by the locals. And Tahiti was very populated at the time, and they had this breadfruit growing everywhere, and it was called breadfruit because when you cooked it, it supposedly tasted like bread. Hmm. High in protein, high in nutrients, and so Tahiti had this legendary fruit. It was populated. They were going to go. It's already been cultivated, and they were going to use half of the ship to put all these seedlings into the vessel. Even Bly had to give up his captain's quarters so that there would be enough room for 1,000 cuttings to bring. Wow. So what did they think was going to happen? This might be naive of me. What did they think that their interaction with the Tahitians who were already on the island, were they just going to let them take all this fruit? So what had happened over the years was that Captain Cook had become sort of a celebrity figure in Tahiti and Bly was going to leverage his friendship with cook and say, I've come on Cook's behalf. We would like to take a thousand cuttings. It grows so abundantly and so wildly that it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And as part of the cargo that they packed to bring to Tahiti were mirrors, beads. The Tahitians didn't want to trade in money. They wanted to trade in goods that they didn't have. And of course, the British had a ton of that. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of what happens with Captain Cook? 
Absolutely. This is in the late 1780s. Okay. And Captain Cook has made three journeys all over the world, quote unquote, discovering a bunch of new destinations. And as part of one of his journeys, he had a British nobleman named Joseph Banks, who documented all of the new plants, all of the new animals and brought it back. He was the president of the Royal Geographical Society. And Cook started out as an explorer. And then I could take the liberty of saying on his third trip, he became a bit despotic and sort of megalomaniac kind of personality and started treating locals that he would meet on the way poorly, where before it was sort of from a more diplomatic point of view. And he just got away from himself and was chopping off ears of tribal chieftains. And finally, in Hawaii, which he called the Sandwich Islands, the Hawaiians rebelled, cut him up into pieces. And actually, Bly, who commanded the bounty, witnessed it. And you would think that by the time Bly is in charge of his own ship, wouldn't there be some sort of a blueprint for who you should stock the ship with? A good balance between more experienced seamen versus the more inexperienced who might be a little bit more influenced to mutiny if there were some people on board who wanted to do that. So they landed Tahiti. What year do they leave? They left in 1787 and they arrived in 1788. Can we describe what they see? These men who have not had correct nutrients, who I'm sure are very pale and traumatized by being on the ocean for months and months, almost a year. Yes. Suddenly a tall ship comes over the horizon and there are these ghastly apparitions, these skinny men with beards who are gaunt and missing teeth. With weapons, I'm assuming. Well, they knew they were going to get a kind welcome because enough explorers had been to Tahiti before, and Bly had even been to Tahiti before. So he knew what he was getting himself into. And of course, there was a traditional welcome with all these outriggers coming out to bring fruits and flowers and dancing. And there was a beautiful welcome. But I think from, if you think about it from the Tahitian point of view, these men were absolutely ghastly and monstrous, really. Tell me how many people are on this boat. You might have mentioned it before when they pull in. The bounty has um, just over 40 crewmen. 40. Okay. So they arrive and they're given a warm welcome. And I assume they start gathering fruit after they unwind a little bit. So what's decided is that there's going to be a landing party that is going to set up a tent on land. They brought two gardeners with them. So a midshipman will come and help, and then he'll be assigned back to the ship. Some brute force will be helped to chop down trees, and then we'll be assigned back to the ship. So there's a group of them, and a tent is set up, and the culling essentially begins, and negotiations occur with different chieftains. They move the ship at one point to go to a different piece of land to find more cuttings over there, and the gathering goes pretty efficiently. Okay. So everybody seems happy. What was the anticipated time that they were going to be on the island? As quick as possible. And I think we could sort of estimate that that would be about three weeks. Okay. Everything goes well. The breadfruit looks great. What Bly is waiting for is a change in wind so that he can go back. He gives everyone a little bit of time and even does sort of a benevolent throwing of a party and gives everyone time to say goodbye to all of their friends that they had made. They pack up the ship and they leave on April 1st. 
of the following year. So now we're in 1789. And they leave and three weeks into their long journey to Jamaica, the mutiny occurs in the middle of the night. So everybody is tan and full of breadfruit, and now they're on course finally. They had stayed from October, is that right, of 88 until April of 89, is that right? Is that the time period? Okay, so they were there longer than just a few weeks. They were there over Christmas and into the spring. What switches for them in the middle of the night, in the middle of really deep water? The reason behind the mutiny is the most studied element of this widely known event. And a hundred books have been written about the relationship between Fletcher Christian and William Bly. So Fletcher Christian is a lieutenant under Bly, and he's the leader of this upcoming mutiny. How does this even happen? What happens is that everyone's depressed because they're having to go back to their dreary lives. And what I think occurs is this trickle-down of trauma where Bly had witnessed Cook's murder in Hawaii about a decade earlier, and a similar sequence of events occurs on a small island in Tonga, and Christian leads people ashore to get some fresh water because they're running low, and the whole ordeal is a disaster. They're chased off the island, and I think something triggers Bly, and he just lays into Christian. He accuses Christian of stealing something and that, and Christian was sort of of noble birth and he felt like his reputation was being tarnished. And there's a moment where we have no log of Christian, but he was a lieutenant on board and he should have been keeping a log. And so we know that he threw his log overboard. And there is a moment where we think maybe he was going to abandon the ship, but then he decides to do it in reverse. And he gathers all of his friends because he was very congenial. He had a lot of friends on board and garnered better following than Bly. And he takes about half of the crewmen, about it's like 25 of them, mutiny against the rest. And they lower a dinghy into the water and they put Bly into the dinghy with uh, about 17 of his loyal followers. And they are meant to row off into the night. And Christian could have put a bullet in Bly, but he decides to let fate handle what happens to Bly and the other men. And then he commandeers a vessel and goes back to Tahiti. I want to know a little bit more about Lieutenant Fletcher Christian. You said he's of noble birth. Why is he not the captain or whatever, the head of this mission to begin with? That's a great question because there's something really important to remember that I think we picture all of these people as being in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. They're all extremely young. Bly is in his early 30s as the commanding officer, and Fletcher Christian is 10 years younger. And one of the reasons that Christian is on board, and Christian was very intelligent, we have records of him doing very well in school, is that his family was of noble birth, but they had lost all of their money. And so it was a good way to make money and earn prestige in the age of discovery was to join as a higher-ranked officer. But isn't this unusual that someone is of that rank to then just decide to lead a bunch of 15-year-olds and sort of 'er ne'er-do-well maybe on a mutiny, and they got the numbers. So they got 25 out of 40 people to agree to this, right? Yeah, Uh, The psychology there is fascinating and no one has been able to perfectly unpack it. But I think this is 
where that death by a thousand cuts starts to play in is that Bly had been needling him with insults for over a year. Mm. And there, there is one theory that I elaborate on in the book that the idea of a mutiny had been put in Christian's brain even before he left because his older brother had been a participant in a mutiny on a merchant vessel and basically warned him, be careful who you trust. And this imagery of a caged animal starts to become pervasive. And I think it's this mental breakdown is essentially what happens to Christian. Does a bond form with this group of men? Do any of them become romantically involved with these Tahitian women? Yeah, all of them found a blood brothers in friends and then had a wonderful time with the Tahitian women. Christian did sleep with a variety of women. I think the Hollywood version is that he met this woman, Mauatua, and they fell deeply in love and it was a Romeo and Juliet situation. That really wasn't the case. We can't substantially prove that he made some sort of vow to her. But when they return, he seeks this one woman out, in particular, Mauatua. This is going to sound very naive. Couldn't they have just asked? To go back? I mean, isn't there right to go back at some point? When you're in the Navy, you're bound by very specific rules. So if you didn't go back with Bly to the New World and then on to England, you would have been a deserter. Okay. And if you were caught, it would have been perceived as treason. You would have been court-martialed and likely you would have been hanged. Okay, so when we last heard from Bly, he was in a, what, a dinghy with 17 other people? Is that right? That's correct. Is it near Tonga that they're adrift? Yes, adrift. And, you know, it's four in the morning. It's still dark out. All of these men are put in a dinghy, which they call a cutter, and they disappear into the night. And then the bounty is commandeered back to Tahiti. And that's when Fletcher Christian's obsession with being caught begins. Hmm. It's almost microscopic at the beginning. But what he decides is that he can't stay on Tahiti because when he's found, he will no doubt be dragged back to England and hanged for his crime of treason. So he decides he's going to take any Tahitian friends that want to come along. They're going to settle a different island. Okay. And then he gets it in his head that he's going to create a colony for the British crown. And he calls his settlement Fort George after the king of England and they find an island, Tubuai, that's settled by the Tubuayans, which are cousins of the Tahitians. And things go horribly wrong there very quickly. As one would expect, trying to settle an island that's already been settled. Exactly. So he goes back to Tahiti again. And at that point, his fellow mutineers are like, you know what, Christian, like, we're done. We're exhausted. We're, we've been building this colony. We don't want to do this anymore. We just want to stay in Tahiti. And if we get caught, so be it. But eight of them go with Christian to try to find an uninhabited island. And along goes six Polynesian men and around a dozen women. And that's when the real story of Pitcairn begins because ultimately they will find an uninhabited island called Picairn. But the obsession with being caught continues because did Bly survive? He was a pretty wily navigator. Of a dinghy with 17 other people. <laughs> yes. And that's the obsession begins to grow. Is one, one day on Picairn, is Fletcher Christian going to see a tall ship on the horizon coming to take them away and hang them? Is he going to disgrace his family back home of noble birth? So it's fun to leave Bly's fate as a question mark until later in the story. 
Would Britain care that much about a merchant ship with 40 men to then risk a lot to go send somebody to find out what the heck happened to these guys? Yes, they cared a lot. In (laughs) fact, news gets back to England. So should I guess, should I just spoil the Bly? I'm going to spoil the Bly stuff. You can go ahead and spoil it. I can already tell because he's a master navigator. He survived in this dinghy. (laughs) He did. And what's interesting is that this is what I knew that I had to write a book because Bly's journey in itself could be a whole book. Yeah. So he's in the dinghy. They have pieces of bread, a little bit of water, a few logs. And what ultimately happens is they make it all the way to Timor, 4,000 miles away. possible without eating one of each other. I don't understand. They really made it that far? They took all the bread, which they had five days worth of bread, and they rationed it so that they would all eat like an eighth of an ounce of bread each a day. Is this the bread fruit with all the protein or like bread bread? Actual loaves of bread. Oh, wow. They must have been skeletons when they arrived. They were. But what they got to do was stop in the Great Barrier Reef along the way where they could pick crab and oysters. So there was a moment where they weren't in complete open water where they could get sustenance, but it rained almost the entire time, which sounds like a curse, but that's actually the reason why they survived because they were able to have fresh water. Did he know where he was going, do you think? Did you get that impression? He absolutely did because they tried to stop on another Polynesian island and the only death amongst those men was that they were trying to get water and food and they were chased off the island by spears and one of them was speared in the throat and was killed. Okay. So then he vowed to not stop on any other Polynesian islands, but he was so good at plotting using stars that he was like, I am going to take us all the way to safety to the Dutch East Indies. Okay. So ultimately, they all end up in Batavia, which is Jakarta, and they all are ferried back to England on Dutch vessels in batches. So there's room for three of them on the first one, so Bly goes, and then there's room for a few more and a few more go. And Bly gets back and he tells everyone the story, and the crown is incensed. They are angry at what happened, and then they take one of their warships called the Pandora and they take it all the way to Tahiti with the crown's most notorious captain, Captain Edward Edwards, great name. And they go all the way to Tahiti looking for the men. And when they get there, they find the men who had bowed out from looking for Pickheron. And they round them up and they put them in the brig And what happens is is the Pandora hits a reef near Australia, sinks, quarter of those crewmen die, some of the prisoners die, and they do the same open water journey that blighted to Batavia in repeat. Wow, the terrible luck. I guess that wasn't that unusual, though. People hit icebergs and people hit rocks, and it was just so much more mysterious than it is now. 
It's been really fun to take the entire crew and see what happened to them after the whole bounty story occurred. You know, of course, nine of them ended up on Picarin and we'll unpack what happens to all of them. It's really interesting. The loyalists, you know, some of them went out on a mission two years after returning from the bounty and they died on that mission or they were involved in another mutiny or it was just a completely reckless existence. And yeah, you were pretty much guaranteed death. So does Edward Edwards, with his great name, does he die on this wreck? No, he makes it out. Does the Crown say, well, say la vie, we're going to give up on finding Fletcher Christian, or is there another effort made? They decide that the bounty was lost at sea Hmm. because... What happens is they grab the leftover men in Tahiti, put them in the brig, and then zigzag through Polynesia looking for them, stopping on every island, combing the entire destination for three whole months. They never find them, so they decide that the bounty went down. And Pitcairn, tell me a little bit about that. That's an uncharted island where? How could they not spot them? So Pitcairn already had a name before Christian and the other mutineers found it. And the reason it had a name was that there was a captain a couple decades earlier, Captain Carteret, who had a young midshipman on board who was 15, whose last name was Picarin, whose father was a quite well-known Navy officer. And this young boy spotted a small island about the size of Central Park in New York City. And they jotted it down. They did not go on shore. There was no one living on it, but there was proof of fresh water. But at that time, longitudinal readings were prone to being inaccurate because you needed to use time to calculate it. So they got the latitude right, but they got the longitude wrong. 200 miles wrong. Wow. And what ultimately happens is in early 1790, Christian and his band of mutineers and Tahitians find Picairn Island, go ashore, deem it habitable, and the bounty is burned so that no one can find them. And they purposefully maroon themselves on the island after they think that they can sustain themselves. And fast forward... 18 years, and you have an American merchant vessel. They were sealers. So at this time, it's like Nantucket is booming with whalers and sealers. And one of the ships is in a storm and has lost his way. And there's an American captain, Mayhew Folger, who sees this bump of land. And they're very low on supplies. And he's like, you know, I'm not an explorer. I really don't want to get into this. But we should go on, get some fresh water. And as they get closer, they see a fire burning. And they're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? I can't believe people live here. This is so wildly remote. And then three young boys in a little outrigger canoe emerge from the island and pull up next to Folger's ship. And they speak perfect English. Imagine being 9,000 miles away from Great Britain and you see these... Polynesian-looking boys speaking proper British English. It was completely confusing. 
And flash forward an hour when he starts talking to them and he puzzled it all together that he has solved the biggest nautical mystery of the time, which is whatever happened to the Bamsi and Fletcher Christian. So these are the children of the Tahitian women and the British sailors who all left Tahiti and went to Pitcairn. Well, interestingly, when they arrive on the island, the mutineers, Christian mutineers and the Tahitian women, there are 28 of them, nine men. And in 1808, 18 years later, 18 years of solitude, only one of the men is left. And the documents say it's about three or four women. It's harder with the women, unfortunately, because history marginalizes women of color so much, but it's about three or four. So of the 28, there are four of them left. Wow. Why? I mean, what was the mystery? Well, Folger asks, this man immediately when he realizes that the mystery of the bounty has been solved. Where is everyone else? And he says, swept away by desperate contentions. Who's going to rule the island? So they all murdered each other. (gasps) Okay, hold on. The big $10 million question, did Fletcher Christian become one of these men who survived? So it was really the second chapter of the book puts the mystery out there. Who is the final man who, if in this game of real-life survivor, is the winner and sole survivor of this Pickheron experiment. And, of course, I don't tell you until the end of the book, but you meet all of the other characters because then the book goes back in time and starts from the beginning. So you meet Christian, of course. Is it Christian? That's the final survivor. Is it Quintal, the psychopath? Is it Young, the bookish Bible thumper? Is it McCoy, the drunk? And you meet all these characters and then you're sort of left to figure it out. And I I resolve it at the end and I explain who it is. But when Folger, the American captain, asks the sole survivor, who are you? He doesn't say because he doesn't want to get in trouble. And he uses a code name. He uses the name Adams instead. Can you give us a hint? People are going to want to know. They're going to ask. They're going to get mad at me. I'm going to give you a hint. So it's not the patently evil person that wins, and it's not the good guy either. So it's that shade of gray character, and that kind of whittles it down to a couple of the other guys that you meet. Okay. So someone other than Christian. So Christian gets killed. So I'm assuming he's anointed himself president or dictator or whatever of the island. Is that kind of the way you would think? He's led everybody there. So Christian wants to create a democracy. Oh, that's refreshing. It is refreshing. And it's unclear if he does it because of cowardice or if he does it because he genuinely believes in a democratic experiment. But what he does with the nine men is they're all paired up with Tahitian women and there's a group of Polynesian men as well. And he divides the island up into parcels. So everyone gets to be sort of governor of their own little parcel of land. And they create a chore wheel, essentially. So each couple is going to do the watch, to watch for ships for a week up at lookout point, and then they can return to their parcel. And communal gardens are created. Everyone scours the timbers of the bounty to create cottages for themselves. Oh, sounds idyllic, actually. And then they fish. And what else is available resources to them food-wise on the island? Well, what they quickly discover was that there's evidence of a human touch on the island before they had arrived. 
there was evidence of gardening and a certain sort of geometry that doesn't exist in nature. And it turns out that it had been used in some capacity, maybe an obsidian mine or a way station, or even maybe people that lived there, proto-Polynesian, so a thousand years before the bounty. And so all of these pieces of food, fruits and vegetables were growing abundantly. Amazing. Where does this go wrong? Because it goes wrong, horribly wrong. So the first year goes great. The first year, everyone is living in harmony. Mauatua, the wife of Christian, has a son almost nine months to the day after they arrive. And everything feels glorious and hopeful. And then something terrible happens. One of the women is tending to the garden and she is gored to death by a goat. Oh no. She's killed and it throws the balance of the island off because her husband decides that he needs a new bride. But of course, who could it be? As different as the Tahitians were with their perception of love and sex, the British really still had it ingrained in them that it was one man per wife. And there were a few Tahitian men on the island and they had brides as well. So it's decided in a vote that one of the Tahitian men would have to give up his wife and give him to the British man. So it's just, there's this imbalance with this woman's sudden exit from the narrative. And it creates this horrible imbalance because this is the moment where we start thinking about Tahiti as a nation. It's a huge impact. She knew a lot about medicine. She delivered the babies. She was an asset And her departure really shifts the balance of what's going on. And that immediately puts things into a spiraling motion and creates a major schism between the Polynesian men and the white men. So the people who are left, who Folger runs into, right, the American merchant ship, these are children from, is it mostly children from the Tahitian women and the men? Or who are these folks? Who won, essentially, besides <laughs> besides the semi-bad guy? The ultimate answer is no one won. Hmm. There's a moment that comes a little bit later called Massacre Day in the history of the island. And that happens about two years after this woman dies very suddenly. And it's the culmination of a lot of hostility. And a lot of individuals die that day. And then there's a retaliative day avenging those murders. And then... That is this very anti-Darwinian moment where the people that you think are the ones who are keeping this society together, the ones who have their head on their shoulders, the ones who are really propelling everything forward, they're all the ones that go. And then you're left with this very cruel Darwinian joke. The handful of people that remain are just the ones who are the drunks and the ones who don't know how to survive. So it's frustrating because it doesn't feel like a win, but it is sort of very human and very real that the right people don't always prevail. So what happens? Folger gets there. He finds these people. They're there. So what? does he leave them? 
He does. What happens is he he finds these people. There are four older adults, one of the British men and around three of the older Tahitian women. And in those 18 years, a ton of children have been born. 30 plus children have been born to all these men and women. And they're all scampering around the island. And he solves the mystery and he decides that he is going to tell the Admiralty what he's found. And he only spends one day on the island with everyone. And then he leaves and he makes his way to South America and he's captured by the Spanish and he's put in a Spanish colonial prison. And the story of what happens remains buried for even more years. And what ultimately happens is a series of rediscoveries of Picarin by other ships who didn't even know. So a couple years later, other ships find Picarin and they had never even heard of it. So these rediscoveries keep happening. And this Adams character, the alias Adams final survivor, he keeps tweaking his story too to further distance himself from the mutiny from Massacre Day and the mutiny and all that. Because he doesn't want to be sent back. He does not want to be taken after being there for decades at this point. Right. And so he really hones his lie that he had nothing to do with any murders and he had nothing to do with the mutiny whatsoever. And the identity of Adams remains buried for even more time. And then there's this bizarre plot twist in world history. In the twilight years of Picarin's solitude, they become God-fearing and they turn to Christianity. Oh, okay. And finally, when everyone's discovered and the whole world knows about Picarin, they're revealed to be the ideal society because they are devout Christians. And they've emerged from the darkness. And finally, Adams reveals who he is. And then they're perceived almost as angels, angelic, pious devotees of Christianity. So there's this whole plot shift. And then as they evolve, do we have now descendants? Because I want to get into you now and how you fit into all this as a travel writer. First of all, I want to know, is the island still there? Yeah, so... Now we'll flash forward to today. Pitcairn Island is still inhabited. There are 48 individuals that live there today. They are the descendants of Fletcher Christian and the other mutineers and their Tahitian brides. And these individuals choose to remain living at the edge of the planet, separated from the rest of the world. A cargo freighter visits the island only four times a year and brings them the goods that they need to sustain themselves. They've built homes on the island. Uh, When I visited the island, there was a new refrigerator that was being brought to the island to plug in. And I should say, in the book, the narrative actually seesaws between the two. So you're not reading it as half a book of history and then half a book from today. So the first chapter is me on the island wondering, why the heck am I on this island? (laughs) The, The second chapter is... Folger meeting the Adams alias, and the whole mystery is set into motion. And then everything starts back at the beginning. So I travel from America down to Tahiti. The British travel from the UK down to Tahiti, and we all find our way to Picarin. And then everything starts clicking closer and closer and closer as you understand that the actions and the trauma sustained 200 years ago trickle down into how the people feel today and how they view the world and how they interact with me. They are curious about having visitors and they encourage it. It's just 
takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And I explain very upfront how it happened for me. They were starting to look at tourism as a way of injecting the local economy with some money. So on this freighter that serves the island four times a year, there are 12 berths. And they're usually reserved for the pickerners to get on and off the island. High schoolers actually go to high school in New Zealand. Oh, wow. And so sometimes their parents will go visit them. And a lot of them need medical care in Tahiti. When there's a berth that opens up, that's when a tourist can grab it and go. And I had been reached out to by a consultant. And she said she had been working with the Pitcairners. They're interested in having a North American journalist come and visit to write a magazine article about, you know, the world's most far-flung inhabited destination, essentially. Wow. And it was just like a fun story that had photos about what life is like today. And, you know, you can go swimming and diving and the food is incredible because you're catching your own fish and you're pulling coconuts and bananas off the trees as you take a hike. And I genuinely didn't think I was going to write a book, but then the experience was so unique and the history is so riveting that I had to know more. What do they think about their history? I think that they perceive themselves to be the custodian of the most fantastical, mystery, legendary event that has occurred in nautical history. And they almost see themselves as royalty in a way. A lot of their Tahitian forebears were Tahitian nobles. They were Tahitian noblewomen. And the men, Fletcher Christian could trace his ancestry to William the Conqueror. Wow. And they are oddities, the people that live there now. And they're often invited all over the world to speak about Pickheron and to talk about life there. It's a living museum. But not anyone can live there. They actually offer immigration opportunities. They want to keep the island populated. And so you can actually apply for citizenship and you will actually get a stipend to build a home there. However, the islanders don't want you to live there. It's theirs. And they don't want your diseases either, I'm assuming. I'm sure they don't want COVID. I mean, I can imagine that's one of the concerns of some of the other more isolated islands and areas is they don't want Westerner diseases, right? Correct. The island has been closed during the entirety of the pandemic. And we could say that Pitcairn is the only country that has never had a COVID case. Is there a government? Is it a democracy? They have an autonomous government. Uh, instead of calling it a president, they call it the mayor, which feels apt because it's only 48 people. <laughs> and what I loved was that everyone has a title like Minister of Transportation, but that's just like guy who makes sure the road is not super ruddy. They have like Postmaster General, which is like, Guy works at the mailbox. I was curious about when you said they want to boost the economy. What is the economy in Pitcairn? Well, they get a lot of taxpayer money from the UK. So they're well taken care of. And taxpayer dollars actually run the freighters to service them. But it's really hard to generate income yeah. on the island. So the government actually pays everyone it's like 10 New Zealand dollars an hour for their services. So it's actually quite democratic when you think about it because the mayor... And the garbage man make the same amount of money. Yeah. They used to sell stamps to stamp collectors, and they still do. I bought stamps when I was there, and they're rare, right? A Pitcairn stamp is a coveted stamp to have in your collection. You know, if we wrap this back around 
to the beginning of the story, which started in the late 1700s. Fletcher Christian, if I remember correctly, wanted to create an island that he claimed he wanted to be a British colony. And that's kind of what's happened. I know it's not a colony, but he wanted a piece of land that he would commit to the crown, but he wanted the freedom to do whatever the hell he wanted to do. And it sounds like, besides from getting killed, it sounds like he was able to do that. It does, in a, in a strange way. I think that fantasy was fulfilled, and I think Christian is seen as the architect of Pitcairn. And I think that there was an ardent desire to fulfill that destiny. There have been a lot of bumps, however, along the way. What happened to Bly? Did he... <laughs> Ever go on a ship again? I can't imagine. No, the craziest thing about Bly is that when he got back to the UK, it was cleared of wrongdoing and they sent Edward Edwards to go find everyone. They actually sent Bly on a second breadfruit mission. Because the first one worked out so well. And he went because he was so obsessed with raising his station and he wanted to be this famous guy. And he was born from the middle class, but he desperately wanted to be a nobleman. This is the best part is that Bly suffered several additional mutinies in his life, ultimately became the governor of New South Wales in Sydney. There was a rum rebellion there, and he died in London of what they think was high blood pressure. (laughs) I imagine he got a little bit of glee out of learning what happened, though, to Fletcher Christian after he sent him adrift in a dinghy with 17 other people. He died right before. Oh, (laughs) So what is the moral of this? Is there a moral? The moral is that you can travel to the farthest recesses of the world, but you can't escape yourself. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Catherine Miles on the serial killer who stalked women in a national park. Once this tent is found, it is immediately the fog of war in the Shenandoah National Park. And the authorities there start to make a series of catastrophically terrible, and in some cases, utterly indefensible decisions, including withholding from both the media and park goers and the general public that this murder had occurred. For about 48 hours, they tried to pass it off as a bear attack. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode.
If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.